Indiana Bible College is committed to training tomorrow's apostolic leaders today. This is the Indiana Bible College podcast. Worship is simply a part of who we are as apostolics, and that's precisely what our episode is about today. Reverend Bobby Kilman teaches a, a session called A Theology of Worship, but before we get to that talk on worship, I want to say that we hope you are able to join us February 1st, 2019 at IBC Live 2019. Tickets are available now at indianabiblecollege.org forward slash IBC Live, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes for you, but be sure and check that out sooner rather than later because seats are selling fast. Not to worry, though, if you're unable to join us in Indianapolis, you can join us wherever you are online. The live stream will begin at 7.15, that's Eastern Standard Time, February 1st, and the worship will begin at 7.30. Right now, let's hear Reverend Bobby Kilman, A Theology of Worship. Towards a, uh, looking towards a full theology of worship. So Brother Anderson uh, invited me uh, to teach, and I was like, oh, yes, I'd love to come and say stuff about worship. I uh, am not so talented myself. I have a family that uh, sang and evangelized for quite some time, and, of course, my sister, uh, Joy, stole all of the talent and drained the gene pool, and I'm still bitter about it. I'm praying about it, trying to get prayed through over it. Uh, but uh, she, they are very talented. I did play the drums, and she can play circles around me on the drums. you think she would leave me one thing, but she did not. So um, I, I love music, um, and what I'd like to do is if I had one shot to kind of teach uh, at music ministers, ministers of music, I would I'd probably take this shot. Uh, so what I'm, I want to look at is uh, to- understanding a full theology of worship and by that I mean talking about the power of identity and testimony in true worship. So <clears throat> I'll try to remain calm, but I'm probably going to get pretty passionate about this because I, I love uh, this particular subject. All right, so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what makes us different in terms of saying we're apostolic uh, people? So this is kind of in the synopsis of your notes there. So we're asking a question about, what, what makes us as apostolics unique? What do we do that's, that's different than everyone else out there uh, in, uh, in denominal Christianity? What do we do uh, or what do we bring to the table? Are you ready that no one can replicate? All right, if you understand that right, it's just, it's powerful. And so I'm, I'm going to uh, try to convey that as uh, clearly as I can today. One of the most astounding things about Scripture is that if you destroyed the entirety of the Old Testament and you left only the book of Psalms, you could recreate everything the Old Testament people believed just from the book of Psalms. Right? The reason why is because we sing what we believe. That's absolutely true. And so uh, that means that in disclosed in Psalms is powerful methods. Okay, <clears throat> So uh, if you expected me to come and be preachery, I'm going to be a little preachery, a little bit. Uh, but what I hope to do, how many of you say, I, I like tools? 
right? That's what I hope to bring to you today, is to give you tools, a skill set exposed in Scripture that shows us how to make worship both a rich experience in terms of uh, what is felt and a powerful spiritual reality at the same time, and, and that's exactly what God intends worship to be. All right, so uh, I think if we're equipped with the right definitions and we intentionally use the methods from what God uh, gives us in our songs and worship, we can, uh, just like the psalmists of old, build things into the people of God that even I, as a preacher, can't do. All right, how many of you learned your ABCs with a song? Okay, we know that's fundamentally true at, at say, but we think we'd leave it in this room, the preschool room. We think we leave it here. But when we walk out into the church, if we're not careful, we lose a powerful dynamic to impact our people, explaining the faith to them in such a way that it's ingrained in them. I I was just here to tell a bunch of stories, but my uh, 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 father-in-law, when my wife and I got married, been married for 13 years, and uh, she's a sweetie. Uh, I got the best woman in the world. I'm so sorry. I tell the students all the time, the guys, I'm so, so sorry you're left with second best. She spoils me. Please don't let her know that she spoils me, but she does spoil me. Uh, so uh, I, I te- we were having our wedding here at Calvary, and they lived in Crawfordsville, so they had to drive an hour back to Crawfordsville. And her, uh, gr- her grandfather came, and uh, he has uh, had a severe case of dementia. So uh, he wouldn't always know, oh, that's my granddaughter, Amy. Uh, and my mother-in-law was driving him back. Vicky was driving him back. And she was trying to hold conversations, which was just difficult. And uh, then she says she just didn't know what else to do. So she started singing a hymn. And to her astonishment, he starts belting out in this baritone voice. I mean, strong, this hymn of the church. Because there's a way in which song is in, ingrained into our heart and spirits. And I would say our souls through the mind, it's hardwired in a way that nothing else is. All right? So I, I think there's, um, the psalmist got it. And they understood how powerful it was. As well as our early apostolic predecessors. Uh, song was powerful, 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 powerful. And I'll show you what that means in just a little bit. How, what did they use? They used testimony and identity in song and worship, not just because it's good and it makes us run aisles, but ultimately to win their day. And I'll show you uh, what that looks like. All right, so uh, today we can talk about, like, worship wars. <clears throat> you know, uh, and the question ultimately becomes, are we even on the right battlefield when we, when we discuss those things? Because the current state of... Worship wars is kind of odd, um, and it is a big deal. Did you know that the first murder in the Bible was over preference in worship? Can I get an amen from the choir director? How many, how many of you know you could split a church over uh, choir? I mean, just a song selection. Bless God. And some people's like, you're bringing in a new pastor. They're will- they don't care. They're willing to throw out everything that First Timothy says and Titus says, just as so they can get the pastor that comes in to lead the worship program in the way that they want. I want my songs, and I like him because he sings my songs, you know, all right? But ultimately, uh, we have to ask a, a different question. Mostly, the issue revolves around preference. What do I prefer? Well, I prefer this music, or I prefer that music, all right? And we're going to look at what that is, because the point is, is we need to think about it biblically, all right? We need to move past the stage of preference and start talking about what is the biblical standard for worship, 
All right. Uh, so the, the current kind of talk is a traditional versus contemporary. Uh, traditional worship. Well, this is what do you mean by traditional worship? Well, traditional worship is three songs in a special, then three points in a poem, followed by an altar call. Traditional worship. Right? And, and that basically has its origin in the 1950s. Right? And contemporary worship. Contemporary worship is a more uh, informal, kind of a downsized ensemble or group. And uh, it's kind of, I, I sound pejorative, but repetitive ditties uh, before somebody gets up to give a talk. Okay. All right? Now that's contemporary uh, worship. Now I will tell you the fascinating thing for me is most of the conversations about worship is talked uh, in terms of this. Right, but let's move past that. And that, that has its origins, basically, contemporary worship in the 1970s. Right, so I hate to be facetious, but I am being a facetious. Please go with me. <laughs> I hope I don't shut you down. All right, so we have to say it's not about our preference then. It's what's biblical. And most of what worship wars is, is this. Here's the argument in, over uh, traditional versus contemporary worship. God lives in 1950. No. God lives in 1970. No, God lives in... Ni- I mean, that's what all of this rhetoric can be reduced to when ultimately there are some things from the 1950s that are not biblical. And if it's not biblical, guess what? It needs to burn. And there are some things that are uh, from 1970 that are not biblical. It ne- and if it is, guess what? It needs to burn. And I don't care if it's in the hymnal or, or on the radio right now. If it's not scriptural, then we need to say, I don't care what I prefer. Ultimately, my preference has to bow to uh, what the biblical definition of worship is. Amen. Okay, so well, let's look then at Scripture. I think there's a powerful teaching in uh, Psalm 96.1. I'm not the first person to notice this. Lots of people have uh, engaged this over time. But I think this is a great place to talk about a theology of worship. Uh, the, Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Now, why do you like that, that so much? Well, I like that because um, it says sing a new song. So that means new songs are okay. Amen. All right? And that means... Uh, somebody, bless God, somebody besides Fanny uh, Crosby can write a song. Right? It means somebody else can actually create some material and, and win a song. All right? So if not, guess what? We'd all be singing the song still. Right? And that's absolutely true. Uh, so pick your favorite hymn. You know, people that uh, come up and they will say to worship leaders, I, I like only the hymns. Well, pick your favorite hymn. Let's talk about it. Did you know once your, fam- your, your favorite hymn was new? And not only was it new, somebody hated it because it was new. <laughs> That's absolutely true. All right, so uh, what we need to do then is we need to realize that each generation must articulate worship in their own words and voice. All right, every generation has the responsibility and privilege of saying, this is what I believe about God, and as long as it's biblical, Amen. And this is what I believe about my testimony and what God has done in my life. I think we have the primary responsibility to engage this generation in saying, tell your testimony, tell what you believe about God. And that can only happen if we sing unto the Lord a new song. Okay? All right. So sing unto the Lord a new song. So what makes people on Sunday morning worship turn into kind of like the battlefield? <laughs> what, what motivates people to argue from preference? Well, you can do a little research, and you'll find that 
um, research shows us that people are usually arguing from an area where they were 8 to 10 years old in church and they felt safe and protected, and that's what become church to them. Right? And so what feels comfortable and what, what makes me, reminds me of that place of safety is what I prefer. Okay, now that's true. And that's why people argue from preference. And, but that's, look, it's, that's okay. We're going to sing maybe some hymns, hopefully, and some other stuff. Because when you get a cross-generational group together, if you're not careful, Sunday morning can turn into a battlefield. <laughs> All right, so what is a better definition then? All right, I think this is a really good definition from Bruce Leafblad. Um, He says, true worship happens when we set our mind's attention and our heart's affection on the Lord, praising Him for who He is and what He's done. Now, that's just packed full. All right, and unless you think it's not biblical, I'm going to show you that actually that definition is biblical. All right? Um, So uh, let's look at some principles then to guide us when we're talking about uh, worship together in a a uh, cross-generational community. Uh, First of all, what what Psalm 96 will show us is that there is a worship that's not true. They that worship the Lord must worship Him what? That's right. So in that definition, our Lord discloses to us there is worship that's not true. But what you need to understand then is everybody worships. Everybody. Heard a great illustration by Vadi Bakum. Uh, he said this. He went to a, a Yankees game, Yankee Stadium. He said, and he's watching this kid. He said, the kid's got the Yankee pennant. He's got the hat. He's got the coat. He's just, he's decked out. He's, and he said, and they win the day. They're winning the game. So he said, it was a great day for the Yankees. He said, and this kid, he's in his early 20s. And, and they don't just shut down. They start piping over the uh, kind of the PA, old blue eyes, you know, Frank Sinatra, New York, New York. And he said this 20-something-year-old kid is standing up just belting out New York, New York. I mean, veins are popping in his neck. He's red in the face. And what is he doing? He's worshiping. He's focusing his mind's attention and his heart's affection on the Yankees, praising them for who they are and what they've done. Now, the problem is, it's not true worship. Why? Because true worship focuses on the one true and living God. All right? So everybody worships. And if they, can, if they can praise God for taking a pigskin across the goal line, my Lord, shouldn't we focus our mind's attention and heart's affection when we get together praising the Lord for who He is and what He's done? All right? Now, Everybody worships, but worship isn't music. And if it makes you a little uncomfortable, worship isn't merely music. Okay, I'll maybe take that approach. But we have taught an entire generation of young people that worship equals music, and that is not true. You can have a lot of music, and you can have a a lot of verbiage with God in it, but if it's not focused on the one true living God, then it's not true worship. It may be worship, but it's not true worship. Okay, Uh, the second or third reason, rather, I like this definition is it breaks the false dichotomy between the head and the heart. Because people will say things like this. You are either intellectual or you're passionate. That's what they will say. Well, I don't do that because, you know, I'm a I'm a brain guy or I'm a I'm a thinker. You know, 
Well, that's good. But you know, sometimes your brain and what you believe concretes in the action of your heart. And if you're going to sing about the goodness of the Lord, then some, at some point you're going to have to walk out maybe in the aisle and demonstrate that you believe that God has set you free. Right? So I, I don't think you can say, well, I'm, I'm just passionate and I want to throw love to God. You know, it's like, well, look, you can't love what you don't know. And, and if you don't know God, then you, don't, you can't say that you actually love God. Okay, I was just serious to preach right there. I can't. Okay, uh, secondly, uh, I think this is a good biblical definition from Psalm 96, focusing the mind's attention and the heart's affection on who he is and what he's done. Let's look at what uh, Psalm 96 says. Psalm 96, verse 2. This is the psalmist's definition. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Right? Who he is. Uh, show forth his salvation from day to day. Right? What he's done. All right? Declare his glory among the heathen. Who he is. His wonders among all people. What he's done. Uh, 96.4. For the Lord is great and greatly to be. And that's, you know, all caps in the, um, in the, in the uh, KJV. Shows you that's the name of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh is great and greatly to be praised. He is feared above all gods. That's who he is. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Everybody say, what he's done. Right? So right there, we, we have a biblical definition of worship. All right, so worship God. Why? Because he is God, and he's worthy simply because he is who he is. And that's right. But secondly, because he has blessed us. Because he has saved us. Because he has redeemed us. Now, I praise him because he's God. But I get to also praise him because he has been so good to me. All right, and that's a rich understanding of praising God for who he is and what he's done. All right, that said, within this particular psalm, we can see three directions in worship. All right, now I'm going to get kind of pointed here. Praise yourself. Uh, just to kind of ramp up. All right. All right, first of all, we have vertical worship. And that's exactly right. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. And, and, and some people will argue that the only real worship there is is vertical worship. Well, we have it affirmed right here in Psalm 96 that it is proper. Uh, but the question is, is that the only? And, and some uh, choir directors and some music ministers will say, you should take out everything that says we and you should put in I. And, and that is... Um, one function of praise. That's right. Probably uh, the best song I know about this is, I love you. I love you, Lord. Um, uh, you know, because it, it's, it's vertical to God. I love you, Lord. I, I lift my voice, right? All of those personal things. And that's exactly uh, right. But we also see that the psalm shows that praise is horizontal. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. And that means... That's not vertical at all, but it's still authentic worship. And, and I think this is where contemporary music is struggling a bit. They want to just be them and God. And, and ultimately, I think it's like they could dismiss the entire church and it just be them and God. And they've forgotten a, a pivotal piece, which is horizontal uh, worship. All right? So I think the problem with contemporary worship is that they want to live as the, the community doesn't exist. I think that's absolutely true. I want my song sung the way I like it. Uh, or uh, 
when, when it happens that you're singing a song that blesses somebody that's 70 years old because it takes them back to that time when they were 8 to 10 years old. We don't say amen to that. I mean, it's blessing the socks off of them because they're singing an old hymn or an old worship song. And, and why, do we, why do we not? Because we're so narcissistic and selfish that we say, uh, when are we going to get back to my stuff? I couldn't care less that it's but because we're selfish and sinful. Now, I don't think that's the only thing we do, but we had better realize that this is an, just as authentic as vertical worship, right? horizontal as well. Um, uh, further than that, some of my favorite songs are horizontal. Like, let me give you an old-time one. How many of you have heard of Are You in the Church Triumphant? You know, that's, you know Paul says, I'm going to challenge uh, the, my brethren by the Gentiles. And it's like, it's a song where we don't sing it to God, we sing it to each other. And it's, are you in the church triumphant? Are you in the Savior's bride? Have you been baptized into the body? And, and what are we doing? We're confronting, right? We're, and we're, and we're um, or like alabaster box. You know, we, you weren't, some even when we sing, you weren't there the night that he found me. Are we singing that to God? No, he knows when he found us. But we're singing like this. You don't, you weren't there the night that he, and what happens? That's the hook. Yeah. It's testimony. People are like, boom, and they, they stand up on their feet, and they lift their, why? Because they're focusing their mind's attention and their heart's affection on the Lord, praising him for who he is and what he's done. All right, I'm going to tell you that's powerful, powerful, powerful. There's a reason it works, because it's described as authentic worship the way that we should have it in Scripture. Testimony. Okay, I'll try to behave. Okay, so we encourage one another. We provoke one another in worship. Uh, but it means nothing. It's all, it's all we want is our stuff. And, and at times it feels like, man, you might, as well, you might as well be by yourself. You don't even want to worship or sing to the community. So horizontal worship is just as important as uh, vertical. But also the third direction is outside. And this is what I mean by testimonial. Uh, Psalm 96, verse 4 and 5. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Now the fascinating, fascinating thing is, is if you look at this, it looks like the psalmist is writing to idols. Do, do idols hear? No, but idol worshipers do. All right? And so unbelievers, here's what happens. All right, now I'm going to probably... Mess with stuff. So just, you know, quote me. Don't quote Brother Anderson, Bobby Kilman, K-I-L-L-M-O-N. Uh, but unbelievers cannot express true worship. They can't. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Unbelievers cannot express true worship, but they can experience true worship. When they come into our churches, they should see something else. And, our, and what we do in worship should be so explosive that we expose them to true worship. Right? What does that look like? Well, there are people today that want to build services. And they call them seeker-driven services. Okay, All right, that's about as pitiful a notion as I know of, especially in terms of what the Bible teaches. We don't design worship for the sinner. We design worship with the King of Kings, with, with our Lord Jesus Christ in mind. And through this expression to Him, the sinner will experience real worship. They can't express it. Why are you building it with them in mind? All right? If you design worship and songs so that they're pacified, guess what? They'll never be confronted with the gospel. They'll never be called to repentance. You've got to have songs that's built with theology in mind. 
so, uh, like, IBC sang a, a while ago a song, a few years ago, when I was in Bible college, Jesus' name, it's been a while. Have, have you been born again? I think the song was titled Born Again. I'm picking on my sister, she's out there today. Uh, she sang this song, Born Again. Have you been born again? I mean, have you, anybody heard that song? Okay, good song. It's just like, have you? It's in your face. And we're singing to them. Why? Because if you could be quiet and sing nice little happy Jesus songs. Be quiet and let them go to hell. Or you can bring worship in such a way that's testimonial and confronts them in love, but confronts them. Have you been born again? When are you going to say what Jesus says? Have you been born again? we got to say that not only in preaching, but in song. All right, I'll, I'll behave. Uh, so have you been, I remember uh, she tells the story of Steve the bus driver. I think, oh, I shouldn't say we're being recorded. I don't know what denomination for sure he was. I think I know, but I, don't, I better not say for sure until I know. Um, but Steve the bus driver, he hung out with him, drove them around. He, he was chartered to drive them. He stayed the whole time. But every, they closed with that song every night that they toured. <laughs> and he got up and walked out every night. All right, why? Because it's just in your face. And some people are going to walk out. But that's okay. The last night, what did Steve do? He didn't walk out. He came down to the altar and got filled with the Holy Ghost. Why? Because songs are more built for more than just the outsider. It's built with God in mind. It's built with testimony in mind. It's built with apostolic identity in mind. Okay. All right, so uh, an unbeliever can't express it, but they can be impacted by it. And that's exactly what Steve was. He was impacted by our testimony. All right, now I'll resist the urge to do everything. All right, so what happens when we get this right, when we get worship right? Psalm 96, verse 6, he says this, Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. What does that mean? When an unbeliever comes into an apostolic church, and when we lift him up and tell them who he is, you start singing songs about the oneness of God. And, and what he's done for us. You talk about him redeeming you and being baptized in Jesus' name and your sins being forgiven. What happens? When we get worship right, they can feel it. What do they see? They see honor. They've never experienced it, but they see honor and majesty, strength and beauty, people speaking in tongues, the power of the Spirit moving. And what do they, they, they walk in literally and say, I've never felt this before. And I may not understand anything, but I can't deny that there's honor and majesty and strength and beauty in this. But how do you get there? You ready? You can't get to verse 6 unless you do the rest right, praising for who He is and what He's done. All right, so the centrality of apostolic and identity, um, apostolic identity and testimony in worship is critical. All right, so we need to understand who we are and testify. So uh, people that get into worship wars, this is one of my number one frustrations. People that fight over music don't even know the God that they're arguing uh, and, and they're arguing for their preference. All right, it's like... Please don't bring me that tired argument of traditional versus contemporary. How about we talk about what's biblical and let it be expressed in both genres. And if they get it right, it's going to be powerful. All right. All right. So uh, when, when people bring and understand the offering of worship that you bring and you pour it out before God, the first time that you sung a song and, and you meant it, like amazing grace. Do you remember the first time? I mean, we sing it all our lives, but you remember the first time maybe that you sung it and you start thinking, oh, amazing grace. How sweet the sound 
that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You remember when that became a testimony? Now that's a transition in worship, and that's what we need. All right, now here's the point then. Uh, But could you leave that door? Are you guys hot? It's like smoking in here. Could you leave that door open, Sister Perez? Thank you. (laughs) All right, so they can't sing our testimonies. And that's the point. I hate to, I'm going to be a little pointed here. Again, I guess I've been the whole time. Uh, The Baptists aren't going to sing our testimony. They're not going to create it. The only people that will create it is us. The only people that are going to write songs about apostolic identity and apostolic testimony are apostolic. So we got to do more than sing uh, some of these other things that we, and I'm not against things that they get right. But when are we going to sing some other stuff? Some things that will uh, call people uh, to specifics. All right, so sing about who he is and uh, what he's done for us. Uh, apostolic identity, like the waterway. I wish I could, I, I mean, I tried to find, I can't even find it on Amazon. It's terrible. Uh, G.T. Haywood's songbook called uh, the, Bride, the Bridegroom, uh, I think it's Cometh or Calls. I can't remember right now. I tried to find a copy. I just, if you own a copy, it's probably worth a million dollars. Yes, they do have them. Great, great, great. All right, well, there's my tap right there. All right, so we, here's the thing. We've got to recreate some of these things. Why? Because like the waterway, how pointed was it? If you look at the lyrics of that song and understand that they were walking out of the AOG, they, look, they were not, all due respect, they were not trying to say, let's see if we can kind of go along and get along traditionally. They said, no, no, this is, this is distinctive. This is the voice of God calling us to further revelation. Right? And I'm going to tell you, I, the only way to get those songs is to have a, or it's all in him, or down from his glory. I wish I had time to talk about this. But let's look at one. Uh, before uh, their expulsion from the, uh, the assembly of God, Thoreau Harris startled his assembly of God council by converting to the Jesus name movement in 1916. That year he wrote a song called Baptized in Jesus Name. And what did it turn into? It turned into the rallying cry for a budding apostolic movement. Here's what I would love. I would love to see somebody in this generation write a song that would be the rallying cry for a generation. Amen. It's so full of apostolic testimony and identity that we get it. And it becomes a rallying cry. You know, I, I hate to say it, but that's more powerful probably than some of the sermons that were preached. I'm just saying. All right. He, he said this, today, today I gladly bear the bitter cross of scorn, reproach, and shame. I count the worthless praise of men but lost, baptized in Jesus' name. Hillsong's not going to write that song. So we got to write it. You got to write it. Somebody's got to step up and say, I'm going to pen the songs of a generation that understands who they are and what their God has done for them. Okay, or all oh, the name of names by G.T. I wish I had time to go through all these. But man, a true came down from heaven, bearing with it Jesus' name, held in the mystery through the ages, now spoken clear and plain. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Lord of heaven, Lord of hosts. And in Jesus is the name of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now, do you understand that that's about as strong a testimony as you can get to him saying to his wonderful assembly of God friends that he loves, you've got to get this truth. I love you, but you've got to get this truth. That's what we need. All right, so 
here's what I would ask. This is my, uh, am I out of time? Oh, Lord, I'm close. Am I close? Okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to finish. All right. <laughs> All right, so here would be the question. The, the psalmists, you could destroy, are you ready? Every, everything, every other book, every other word from Moses, every word of the prophets, and just from their song, you could recreate everything. So could we destroy every Bible? Could we stop the mouth of every preacher and destroy every sermon that's ever been preached in our movement and just from our songs reproduce our theology? That's the real question. And I, think not, I don't think that should be chastening. I think that should be challenging because where is the Thoreau, uh, Thoreau Harris of our day that's going to speak so clearly? Brother Anderson said it this way. He said one of the most the things that make me tremble the most is to realize that I put words of worship on the mouths of worshipers. Now, that's a powerful understanding of who he is as a music minister. All right? Oh, Lord. Okay. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. That shows us that the Apostle Paul understands one of the principal purposes of songs is to teach theology. It's like at IBC, that's why we make like, music majors take theology. They're like, sometimes they come in, they're good kids. Sometimes they come in and they're like, why am I, I'm just going to be a music minister. It's, this is right. And then Brother Anderson whips them into shape. And they're like, oh, I get it, that's right. And then, man, they're writing some, I mean, some of our kids so proud of them. They're writing songs that strike to the core of who we are. It's a, it's a powerful thing. So that's one of the principles. Uh, so could you destroy all the uh, Old Testament? Yes. We, we do sing what we believe. So the question becomes, do we have songs like Down From His Glory? Or I See a Crimson Stream of Blood. Uh, songs like this. Um, that's why then we shouldn't be singing songs that don't have theology in them. <laughs> I'm kind of, you know, it's like Jesus, he preached his first ser- sermon. And you know what they did? They tried to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> so I hope I don't get thrown off a cliff today. <laughs> but I, I think this is exactly uh, the type of reflection that we need. Could we destroy the Bible and reproduce everything we believe from our songs? Then we got to sing more than Hillsong. we got to do that. We have to write. Don't be lazy. Create. Grab some stuff. If you're struggling, talk to some preachers. You know, okay, I'm not let the preachers off the hook either because you know who wrote a lot of the songs? Preachers. Ouch. Yes, I hear that. I'm trying. I can't I have no craft. It's terrible. But I do have some people that are talented so I can take ideas to them. And that's, a, that's exactly right. So whether it's old or whether it's new, things in the hymnal with bad theology in it, guess what? We just don't sing it. Or in recent songs that we pull off the... Um, off the radio or someplace. It doesn't matter what I like. If it's got bad theology in it, what am I feeding myself? What am I feeding my congregation? I don't care if I like it. I have to say, ultimately, i got to give something better. All right? So the point then is if we're going to have apostolic revival, the psalmists carried their day. They went into exile under Babylon and Assyria. You know, one of the seven wonders of the world was the Babylonian hanging gardens. Gardens, And you, there you are, and you're a Jewish person trying to, you know, 
maintain faith. How do you do that? They did it through song. Look at Psalm 137. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I don't remember you, let the tongue cleave to, my, to the roof of my... That's a, that's a Levite priest who is a worshiper. And he's literally saying, if I forget God, I don't want to worship ever again because I've lost the content of my worship. Right? So the vision then of apostolic identity and testimony has to be our, uh, articulated. Why? Because every revolution, every revolutionary has a voice. Every leader uh, has a voice. That means you've got to express, you've got to convince, you've got to persuade. And you do that in song. Right? So uh, sing a song of apostolic identity that I think you could create one that would be a rallying cry for our time today. Uh, most worship today, I hate to say it this way, um, so I'm going to cheat and quote Brother Mooney, but he's absolutely right. Um, most worship today describes God. It just simply describes God. Pulls you to a point, but then it gives you no way forward. They sing about the greatness of God. Or they sing about hungering after God. i got a hunger for God. And that's good. I mean, I'm not saying that's bad. We do that, right? Uh, but that's not all we do. Because they, they, they simply will describe God or describe hunger for God. And I hate to pick on somebody publicly, but it's like Francis Chan's sermon. It's okay, I guess. But it's like he's, he's written some books, but you, you get to the point where it's like, okay, you're right. I want to oh, live for God. And he motivates. And I want, oh, that's right. I want to live a life of sacrifice. And then he stops and he leaves him there wanting to express and wanting to commit and no way forward. Why? Because he can't, oh, he can't lead them to waters in Jesus' name. He can't lead them to a place where they can experience the baptism of the Holy Ghost and speaking in other tongues. He has to drop them right where he is stopped. But you don't have to do that. You can say somebody, like the, like the old-time preacher said, somebody take me to that fountain. Somebody take me and give me a drink from that living water. Right? And you can do that. Why? Because we're apostolic. So testify. Sing about it. Talk about it. And if you do, I, I guarantee you, it will be just like Psalms. It'll be like our early predecessors. We'll have incredible, powerful revival. So it's not the lights. I'm not against lights, by the way. But it's not the lights. And by the way, if you're going to say that, you have to say this too. It's not the traditional either. It's not in the new lights. It's not in the traditional setting. It's in, can we lift up God, showing who He is and what He's done until glory, honor, honor and majesty fill our worship. That's where it's really at. Identity. The Old, Old Testament people knew who they were. The question is, is, will we know who we are? And as music ministers and, and people that are helping guide those particular avenues of the church, the question is, is will, will we teach them? Will we intentionally plug in and uh, make this about what we are? I do believe that the best songs in our churches are waiting to be written. I do believe that there's a... And I'm going to tell you if, you, if you don't believe it, come by IBC and watch these young kids that are just hungry. And they're saying, I want, I want this. And then they, and you ready? We give them a way forward and show them how to do it. All right? This generation then needs to articulate their identity and testimony. If we do that, just like the Old Testament people, they'll know who they are even in exile, in a, in a chaotic kind of atmosphere. And also... The early Pentecostal uh, re- revival of the 1900s. It'll be a powerful thing that will unite them in identity and purpose and uh, shake their generation. All right, well, I know I've been a little preachy, but I hope you enjoyed it.
Any questions or not? Okay. Thank you very much. You've been very patient in this hot room. Thank you very much. On February 1st, 2019, we are going to be doing just that. Magnifying Jesus at IBC Live 2019. Tickets are available now at indianabiblecollege.org forward slash IBC Live. Don't worry, we'll drop a link to this page in the show notes for you. Be sure and check that out sooner rather than later because seats are selling fast. February 19, 2019 is a special day, Pastor's Day. Indiana Bible College understands the unique role that pastors play in the lives of our students, and we've set aside February 19 as a day to honor that role. We're inviting each pastor of a current Indiana Bible College student to join us on campus for classes in chapel during the day and then a banquet that evening. 